Good morning. How is everyone? Good? A little more enthusiastic than 9.30. Not much. It's not that late. Early. Whatever. It's early. Um, I'm Joel Mooneyhan. If you're new with us, I'm not the pastor. The pastor was the groovy rock star on the um, sunburst guitar. Yeah. Rock and roll. Um, if you're new with us uh, today, then you've come at an interesting Sunday. We're at the tail end of a series on prayer and what all of that, what prayer means and um, how scripture tells us to pray and what we can expect of it. Um, the first week kind of dealt with getting into the habit of it. And we kind of treated the whole thing as, as though none of us knew how to pray in the first place. Uh, so kind of dealt with the first, first week was kind of the prayers that already exist in Scripture. Um, you know, prayers from the Psalms, prayers that Jesus taught, and kind of reacquainting ourselves with just the ins and outs of the mechanics of what it means to pray. The next week we talked about kind of the, um, the improv side of prayer, uh, kind of jam session prayer where you're just kind of letting it flow and um, talking about uh, whatever comes to your heart. Last week, we dealt a little bit with um, how do we approach God to ask him for things. And then this week, um, we're going to deal with how to pray when we're angry with God. Uh, it's a little bit of more of a heavier topic. So I apologize. Um, but uh, if you have been with us the past few weeks, you're going to notice there's going to be a little bit of overlap with uh, this message and some of the other ones. Partially because Derek and I have uh, been kicking the ideas around for um, several weeks, even before the sermon series started. But also because some of these things are just really important. And we feel like they're um, very significant. And so it doesn't hurt to hear them again and again. Uh, And if you want to catch up when you get home, we have all the sermons online. So uh, if if you missed a few weeks or you're new here and you want to hear more, then I encourage you to go online and um, take a look at those. But diving right in, we're going to deal with anger with God and how do we approach God in prayer when we're just kind of upset or angry or confused or in some other way dissatisfied with how our lives are going. And right off the bat, I think it's important just to get it out in the open that it's okay to be angry with God. I think a lot of times we're timid about our anger because it's God and we're us and who are we to question God and who are we to... Um, say that God is kind of screwing our lives up. Um, And it's okay to feel that way, and it's okay to come to God with that. Uh, And I think God wants us to. Because he knows what you're thinking anyway, so you might as well go ahead and be honest with him. Um, Israel, the name Israel, uh, that comes from a passage in the Old Testament where Jacob is wrestling with God, and they physically having a, a conflict, and in a sense... Jacob wrestles God into submission, and because of that, God names him Israel and subsequently names the whole people of God Israel, and it means God contends or God strives, or a more uh, fluid translation would be the people or the person who contends with God. And I think it's important that we understand that, I mean, God named his people after their willingness to contend with him, and he doesn't want us just to to be passive, submissive people. I mean, ultimately we do submit to the will of God, but God does not want us to uh, be just complete and total doormats. And we need to be comfortable with the fact that there are things that we struggle with. And we can go to him with those, and we can struggle, and we can fight, and God is in that fight, and he will be there. And um, So we need to embrace that uh, just right off the bat. 
we get angry with God, we get frustrated with God, and there's a lot of different reasons why. Um, one of the things is sometimes we just get plain old frustrated, not even like a big existential angst thing, but just kind of things aren't the way we think they should be. We kind of look around the world and we see injustice, and it doesn't really affect us personally, but it does affect us in a sense because we have compassion, and the world's in a bad fix. There are people that are hungry, there are people that are sick, there are people that are homeless, there are people who are marginalized and imprisoned and abused, and we look around and we say, God, you know, where are you in this? People pray about this stuff, and there's still this injustice in the world, and where are you in the midst of it? Um, why are there still people who are suffering, even though you've promised to uh, be with us and to be part of the world? And I think God looks down at us sometimes and says, well, where are you in the midst of that? I've given you resources. I've given you intellect. I've given you ambition. I've given you uh, the ability and the compassion and the, the drive to do these things. And because of that, I've also given you the responsibility. And a lot of times we look around and we we see what's going on in the world and we kind of throw our hands up at God and I think God kind of throws it back at us and says, well, look, what, what are you doing to make it better for the world around you? Are you doing anything? I mean, I know people that get real frustrated with the whole idea of a loving and compassionate God and they're very skeptical about it because they see all this, this struggle in the world and how can there be a good God if there's all this stuff going on. They complain about it and complain about it and complain about it and then when they're done, they go home and play Grand Theft Auto and pretend to kill people for an hour. I'm like, well, what have you done to make the world better? <laughs> Nothing. Um, but it falls on us sometimes to do something about it. Um, sometimes we're just confused over guidance and direction, not even in a, a real serious way, but sometimes we're just like, we're, I'm standing here and it looks like I'm at a crossroads and any option could be as good as any other, so where do I go? I have a friend named Anna. She's a dentist. Uh, she lives in Kentucky and she worked real hard to finish school, and so now she's at a place where she's trying to figure out where she wants to work. And she has some opportunities. She's working in a few places. She's kind of a part of a program that allows her to uh, kind of make rounds in different places where they need someone to, to be there, almost like a substitute, in a sense. And she's been presented with two really good job opportunities. And on paper, you know, weighing the pros and cons, there's not really an obvious answer. They both have things that she would appreciate. They both have things that she kind of struggles with for different reasons. And we kind of, we've been talking about it, and I've talked about some of the struggles I've been having with the direction of my life. And one of the things we've really come to realize together is that sometimes when we ask God, where do I go? What do I do? And we don't hear anything clearly. God's really just saying, make a decision. I mean, do something. I mean, there's, there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. And sometimes I think we overcomplicate it. We want God to make the decision for us. And it's like, God's like, well, I mean, why? You can do this. You can make this decision. And whatever you do, I can work through. And if you do something that may be the wrong decision, I can still, you know, come in and redeem that. But make a decision. Go forward. Don't just stand still. Uh, we frustrate ourselves because we set up some expectation that God's going to give us every single answer we want every single time. And sometimes God's saying, no, uh, it's your turn to do something with this. Um, we place a lot of responsibility on God to do things that we can do ourselves and to solve problems that he's given us the capacity to solve. And instead of blaming God for those things, we should own that responsibility and kind of take up the mantle of the people who are called to be Christ in the world and do something about it. 
That's why community is so important. That's why we gather here today. Um, and it's, it's why we gather in small groups. It's why we are a church. It's because sometimes the answer to our prayers is in each other. And sometimes we are the answer to the prayers of others. And we need to be willing to be that for people and not to shy away from it and blame it all on God when things aren't necessarily going the way we want. There's this old uh, kind of a corny preacher story. Probably everybody's heard it, but it's the, the guy who's in the middle of a floodplain and the waters start rising and the aid workers come in a truck and say, come on, come on, we got to evacuate. And he says, no, God will take care of me. And a few hours later, the waters have risen and it's up to the second floor of his house. And so he's upstairs and then a boat comes by and says, come on, come on, we got to get you out of here. And he says, no, God will deliver me from this. And then the waters keep rising and eventually he's standing on the roof of his house and a helicopter comes and they drop a rope and say, come on, we got to get you out of here. No, God will take care of me. Well, eventually the waters rise and sweep him away. He dies and goes to heaven and says, God, I called out to you to help me. Why didn't you come and help me? And God says, well, I sent you a truck. I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. And he didn't take any of those. What more did you want? And it's a silly illustration, but I think it makes a good point that sometimes the answer is make a decision. Sometimes the answer is, you know, seeking the help of others. Sometimes the answer is doing something for somebody else to make the world better. And are we willing to take that responsibility? Another thing that kind of uh, comes into play is real anger, not just frustration and um, kind of disappointment, but real true anger and pain and confusion with how things are in our lives. And what do we do with those? Um, this past week was kind of an interesting week for uh, people connected with my family. A year ago, um, a friend of my sister's had a little girl and she has an older daughter who was born with a congenital heart defect and they were able to use part of a cow's heart to repair hers which I didn't know was possible but it is um, I think that's really miraculous quite frankly but so her second daughter was born with the same defect only it was worse and so she spent three months in the NICU, and they just couldn't figure out a way to fix her. And she, the family just really struggled with it, and on September 24th last year, uh, her little girl died. So this year, on the 24th, she went to the children's hospital and took care packages to the families that were kind of enduring the same kind of thing that she's enduring. They took blankets, and they took food, and they you know, took whatever she felt like she would have needed in that situation to get to them while they're in need. That same day this week, there was a boy in my dad's church who was also born with a heart defect that had gone undetected until very recently. So he's 12 years old. He just started feeling really lethargic, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong, and they started doing tests, and they found out that his heart had this really serious problem and was operating at something like 15% of what it should have been operating. And so he was immediately put into the hospital, and they started kind of caring for him, and his situation seemed to be getting worse. And he needed a new heart. He didn't just need, like, a repair. He needed a complete and total heart transplant. And, you know... He went into ICU, and he coded blue, and all these things were going on. And then on the 24th, a heart came through. And they rushed him in the OR. They, uh, 
they did what they had to do, they gave him a new heart, and he recovered, and he's been on the road to recovery. And one of the things he's been telling his parents is that he wants people to know um, how God worked in the situation. Now, at first glance, it seems like that for one family, God answered a prayer, and for another family, God didn't. And I just don't think it's that simple. I don't think God caused something to happen to anybody, one way or the other. I don't think God neglected to do something for one family that he didn't do for another. What I think is that God has made himself revealed in both situations. He's made himself known in the kindness that Sarah is able to show to other families who are dealing with the same kind of grief that she's dealing with. He's made himself known in her compassion and her willingness to be a servant, even in the midst of her grief. And man, has she gone through grief. Um, And he's also made himself known in Caden's situation, where something truly miraculous did happen, things against all odds. But all in all, God didn't cause either one to happen. God arrived and began working in each situation to help show who he is and what he's capable of either way. I think a lot of times there's not meaning in our struggle necessarily, the way we think, why is this happening to me? And we kind of have that, what is the purpose of this? I really, I don't know that there is necessarily an inherent meaning in anything that we are doing, except for the meaning that we give it by how we respond. Does that make sense? The way we respond to the things that go on in our lives are what give them the meaning that we often assign to it. If we respond with hopelessness, if we respond with despair, and if we respond with a lack of faith that God is present even when he doesn't seem like he is, then ultimately I think we're going to see that our problems seem meaningless. But if we respond with hope and with determination and with faith that God is working even when we can't see what's going on, then ultimately we find that our experiences do have meaning. One of the things Derek and I talked about the past few days was the passage where it says that God works all things together for the good of those who trust him and who are called according to his purpose. And I think, really, that's, that's more of a retroactive meaning that God gives. It's not that God is causing things to happen and that God is kind of uh, teaching us a lesson along the way, you know, to doing these things to make us learn something. It's more like these things are happening, and God has the power and the ability to turn those situations around in retrospect and say, look, I know this stinks, but there's more to it than this. Another friend of mine, um, we'd been out of touch for a few years, and we just got back in touch with each other, and her life in the past few months has really just fallen apart. She lost her job. She had a relationship kind of crumble apart on her. She's a single mother, and she's pregnant again. And all these things happen within, like, a week. And... We were talking on the phone, and she said, sometimes I feel like I'm paying for something I did. I feel like maybe I'm being punished for something I don't know what it is. And I said, you're not. You need to know that you're not being punished for anything. That's not the way God works. Things happen in our lives. They just do. Um, the thing is that we, there are choices we make that have consequences. There are choices that other people make that affect us. Where God is in the midst of all that, 
it's like we're down on the ground, we're kicked into the dust. And it's not that God has put us there. It's more like God kneels down to us and says, look, this isn't what I wanted for you. And I know it's not what you wanted for yourself. But since you're here, and since we're talking, let's see what we can do to make this right. And I really believe that God does that. I don't think that it's a cause of God. I think that God says, you know what? Uh, this situation stinks, and I know it does. We're going to fix it. We're going to do it together. Um, a lighter illustration. I used to play with G.I. Joes a lot. I promise I used to. I don't still. Um, but the, uh, the three-inch G.I. Joes, not the 12-inch 12 one, ones. I'm not that old. But... Uh, so they, they were really neat, you know, all these points of articulation, whatever. Um, those G.I. Joes had three main parts. There was the, like the torso part, and then there was the waist, and there were the legs. Did anyone, the guys here know what I'm? Yeah. Okay, got it, yeah. So the legs are held together by a little coat hanger, basically, and then it has, there's a rubber band in the torso, and it holds it all together by the, t- anyway. So when you're like five, one of the coolest things to do is to twist that sucker around, and then let it go, and it whew, and they, like, helicopter their arms around. Well, the other thing when you're five is you don't really pay attention to the fact that you're putting stress on the toy. And so sometimes my G.I. Joes would break in half, and it would look horrible. Um, little G.I. Joe corpses all over the place. So I'd, um, I would I'd go to my dad, and I'd say, Dad, my G.I. Joes broke. And uh, I remember just the... The first one, really, the first time he did this is what really stuck out to me. I still remember which one it was. Um, uh, and he did it subsequently many times, and I learned how to fix it myself. But the first, the first time I did it, I said, it broke. And he said, okay, well, let me take it and fix it. So he goes off to work, um, and he comes back, and sure enough, he's fixed it. And so I look in, and he had replaced the rubber band. And he, you know, figured out how to open it up, and anyway. Bring all that up to say, sometimes I think, you know, we come to God with our brokenness, and there's not really a reason why it happened. I mean, maybe it's carelessness, maybe it's just happenstance, whatever it is, God can still fix it, and God will fix it if we bring it to him. And, you know, sure enough, there's going to be evidence that there was brokenness. I mean, you could, you could pull apart so many of my G.I. Joes and see, like, a different rubber band in those than there were in other ones, but... It was evidence of the brokenness, but they were made whole again. Um, We're going to have evidence of our struggle. We're going to have evidence of our brokenness. But we need to trust that God still has the ability to take those things and fix them and make them whole and useful uh, once again. But we still have some challenges when we pray. I think one of those challenges is that we kind of have, we want explanations for things that we really don't have the ability to understand in the first place because they're just too big for us. Sometimes the answer is just no, and there's no way to really understand it. Um, One of the things that we've talked about is the fact that with a child, sometimes the answer, you just have to say no. It doesn't matter why, because they're not going to understand it. I have two sisters and one brother, and they all have children. And one of the things I like to do with them when they come visit is there's a tree outside that uh, really does good with leaves coming off of it in the fall, and you can rake them up and everyone can play in them. So it's something I would do for them when it's fall. Well, one weekend my brother had to borrow my rake, so he had taken it because his rake had broken or something like that, and 
So he takes it off for the weekend. My other sister came to visit with her children, and Charlie is tenacious, really tenacious. And so he comes up to me, and he always wants me to go take him outside and let him roll down the hill on his big wheel, whatever. So he says, can you take me outside, and can we go play in the leaves? My brother had to rake. So we couldn't go play in the leaves because there was no way to rake them up. I said, Charlie, no, we can't go, we can't go play in the leaves today. Why not? Well, because Uncle John's rake broke, he came to me and took it, and so now it's at his house. So? So I can't rake the leaves up to play with them. Well, can you go to Uncle John's house and get the rake and bring it back? Well, I can, but if I do that, then by the time I get back, it's going to be too dark and we won't be able to play outside anyway. And he just couldn't get through to him that there was no way this was going to happen. It's like, mainly because I'm 30 and you're five. And the answer is no. Okay? No matter what I explained to him, he wasn't going to get it because we have different perspectives on, on life. In his mind, Uncle Joel rakes the leaves up and I jump in them. But it didn't occur to him that you have to have the rake, and you have to have the rake in the, in the house. You can't just materialize a rake out of nowhere uh, to go rake the leaves up. Uh, we lack God's perspective, ultimately. There's a Christian philosopher, John Stackhouse, and I have a quote from him. I'm going to read more of it, but this is kind of the crux of it. This God has revealed to us only glimpses of the divine cosmic plan. God has not let us see in any comprehensive way the method and the madness. God has chosen instead to remain hidden in mystery. Those inquirers who attempt to climb ladders of empirical observation and rationalist deduction in order to peer into the mind of this hidden God will only find a vertiginous abyss and apparent chaos they can never plumb. Such speculators risk both their sanity, for the ways of God will confuse them, and their faith, for the ways of God might dismay them. Philosophers have a way of really overcomplicating very simple ideas. Basically what he's saying here is that sometimes we don't have the perspective to understand what's going on. And even if we could, we may not be satisfied with the answer in the first place. I mean, I think that if if we could sit God down and sit him across the table and really press him for the answer to say, I want you to explain to me why this thing happened or why that thing happened or why whatever, and he gave us an explanation, I wonder how satisfied that explanation would really be. I mean, I explained to Charlie that I don't have the rake, and that didn't satisfy him. Well, why can't you go get the rake? Because it's at the other house. And there was just no explanation I could give that would satisfy him. And I think a lot of times we go to God and we say, why, why, why? And there's just not going to be an answer that's going to satisfy us because we don't have the wisdom and the perspective to really understand. I think sometimes we have faulty expectations of what life is supposed to mean or what life is supposed to give us, rather, how life is supposed to turn out. I think a lot of people probably have gotten over the idea that when you're a Christian, everything is going to be hunky-dory and fine. I think we probably understand that's not always the case, but I think we still have expectations about how things should turn out for us. And a lot of times, those are wrong. I remember at a church I served, there was an elderly couple, and the husband died. And the wife was just obviously very grief-stricken. And at the funeral, we were talking, and she just said, I just never imagined that anything like this could ever happen. 
And I thought, really? You never, ever thought that something like this could happen. Because, I mean, I was 25, and I'd seen people die before. I mean, it's not something I, you know, am expecting all the time. But, I mean, I know that life ends. I just thought, how did you get to the age you're at? And never expect that somebody close, I mean, have, has no one ever died close to you before? How did, what expectation did you have other than that? Um, we put a lot of faith in temporary things. We put a lot of faith in our relationships, in our job. Uh, we put a lot of ourselves into our hobbies, um, into money, into possessions. We, you know, and we neglect a lot of the times the relationship that we have with God. And in doing so, we set ourselves up for a lot of disappointment because those things are temporary and they will not last forever. And if they outlast us, then we're, we still lose them. But one way or the other, they're not going to be connected to us forever. And if we're not pouring into a relationship with God, if we're not building up trust in who he is, then when those things happen, we're not going to be prepared to handle them as well as we could have been if we had been building a foundation of trust all along. Scripture testifies to this. It's, you know, Scripture seems to say that the the life will, in fact, it guarantees that there's going to be hardship and there's going to be pain. Uh, Some of the passages, I have some passages up from Psalm 23 and from Isaiah 43. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23 says. It's not if, or I might. It's kind of already accepted that this is something that's happening to me right now, even though I'm walking through this. Uh, Isaiah 43, there's this repetitive passage about when you walk through the waters and when you walk through the fire. It's not if. It's not some kind of imaginary condition that could happen if you're unlucky. But it's treated as a guarantee. It's treated as a given. Uh, In the Lord's Prayer, one of the things Jesus says, he says, deliver us from evil. And he doesn't say keep us from evil. He doesn't say keep evil away from us and uh, keep it separate. Deliverance means that something has overtaken you, that something has come to a place where it could achieve victory. What Jesus is, is saying, that we should pray that we be delivered from that, taken out of it. Not that we be spared from it, but that God come and rescue us. Evil and hardship in the Bible are treated as foregone conclusions. They're not treated as imaginary or uh, rare things. They're treated as a condition that go hand in hand with living as a part of this world. Fortunately for us, the victory of God is also treated as a foregone conclusion. And in that, we have hope. And I think ultimately we have a faulty understanding of what prayer really is. It's not a genie in a bottle. It's not existential 911 that we only use when we're in trouble. And, you know, we've talked a little bit during this series about the fact that we can go to God with requests and we can make petitions and God listens. And there are times when God does come through with those things, but sometimes he doesn't. And if we get caught up into why God seems to do this sometimes and doesn't do it other times, we miss the greater point that what prayer really is about is communication. Prayer is the way that we make ourselves known to God, and God makes himself known to us. 
How often do we pray just to pray when there's nothing that we want? How often do we go to God and just say, here I am. And just exist in that moment without asking for anything, without babbling through and trying to fill the space up with, with just thoughts and words. How often do we just kind of sit there and let the prayer be a conversation where we say a little bit of something and then wait for God to say something back? God's not obligated to give us anything we want whenever we ask. Um, my dad, when he was about four years old, he heard a sermon where the preacher said, if you pray with all your heart, then God will give you whatever you ask for. Well, he's four, so he takes that pretty literally. And so that day at church, he prayed for a bicycle, a green bicycle. Praise and praise and praise all through the service. Goes home, and waiting under the tree was not a green bicycle. He didn't get a green bicycle that day. So he said, that's pretty heavy to lay on a four-year-old, and then for them not to get it, he was pretty disappointed. So then he said, well, God, after dinner, make, you know, I want a green bicycle. And he prayed and prayed and prayed, and sure enough, he didn't get a green bicycle. Um, you know, sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray, and God's not obligated to give us something just because we've asked. Now, later on, um, my dad got a bicycle that was green. Uh, it didn't matter when you're four that he couldn't ride a bike. So having a bike would have been useless to him in the first place. He didn't need it. And later on in time, when he was able to ride a bike, he got one. Now, did God answer that prayer? I don't know. But I think, you know, what, what he learned from that, what I've kind of been able to learn from hearing that story is that, you know, sometimes you're not ready. And beyond that, there's no, God's not obligated to us the way that we're obligated to him. And ultimately, we also need to think about the fact that what we're praying for is what we're asking for, something that goes hand in hand with God's redemptive plan. Now, I don't think that God has a plan for everything, and I don't quite get into a lot of really hardline predestination stuff, but there is a there's an overall program that God is working out. There's a cosmic thing happening in Scripture. Scripture, uh, scripture testifies to it. You know, it begins in Genesis. It comes to this really great culmination with Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. And there's, there's stuff going on there that's part of what God wants for the world. And is what we're praying for, is what we're asking for, really a part of that? Or is it just something peripheral that's not really that important? In the grand scheme of things, um, C.S. Lewis had an interesting take on it. He says, There are no doubt passages in the New Testament which may seem at first sight to promote an invariable granting of our prayers. But that cannot be what they really mean, for in the heart of the story, we meet a glaring instance to the contrary. In Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him, and it did not. After that, the idea that prayer is recommended to us as a sort of infallible gimmick may be dismissed. You know, we, we kind of think that we should get what we want because we asked for it. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, prayed out to God in all desperation. God, if there's any way 
for this not to be the case. If there's any way that I can escape what's about to happen, let's talk about it. Let's see how we can work this out. And it wasn't. Because the overall plan was that Jesus could redeem us. If he'd been spared from that, there'd be something that we'd all be missing. And I'm not saying that things happen to you and for the same reasons, but you have to understand that even if, even if Christ in his most desperate moments could not expect to get exactly what he wanted when he wanted it, maybe we shouldn't expect that either. So why pray at all? I said a minute ago, prayer is basically communication. It's, it's fundamentally the way in which we build intimacy with God. We talked last week a little bit about the parable where Jesus mentions that there's a, a man who has a guest coming to town and he doesn't have anything for him, so he goes to a, friend's of his, a friend of his house and knocks on the door in the middle of the night. And one of the things I think we can really glean from that is that there's obviously a closeness between these people. If he feels comfortable enough to go knock on his door... The fact that Israel is named that way because their willingness to, to fight and struggle with God. Who are the people who you're most likely to ask for things? The people who you're closest to. Who are the people you're most likely to fight with and to struggle with? The people who you're closest to. I think prayer is more about how close we can get to God. It's how we build a very intimate and familial relationship with God and in the best way that we can, come to understand who he is and what's going on. Like any relationship, if it's only one person giving, if it's only one person talking and the other person doesn't have a chance to, to you know, interact, then it becomes really one-sided and lopsided. And if all we're doing is asking God for stuff and babbling to God and not really giving him a chance to respond and have something a bit of us in return, a bit of our faith, a bit of our time, a bit of our sacrifice, then, I mean, how fair is that? How deep, really, is that relationship? How often do we listen when we pray, honestly? I think when Jesus talks about, you know, going into your room and shutting the door when you pray, he's obviously dealing with a little bit of the whole hypocrisy of some of the religious authorities in his day and not making a show of your religion. But I think there's also an element of intentionality and intimacy and privacy that goes along with prayer, that Jesus is also trying to deal with that as well. That it's not just uh, about not making a show of your religion. It's about really being intimate and close and sharing experiences with God uh, you know, the ones with whom we communicate the most are the ones that we begin to think like and speak like and act like. Think of the, you know, if you've spent time away from old friends and then you kind of, you reconnect with them and you spend time with them, all of a sudden you find yourself back in the old rhythms, the old, the old jokes, the old uh, habits, the old patterns of speech. It's because those are people that you have built relationship with, relationships with. They're people that you have familiarity with. And there's a sense in which when you're surrounded by people that you communicate with and spend a lot of time with, you become more like them. You gain the same perspectives. You share things with them. They share things with you. And you start mimicking each other without even realizing it. People can, a lot of times, people who you know, know my parents will meet me somewhere, and they'll know who I am just by the way I look or the way I talk. Because, oh, you must be James's son, you must be Joe's son, because there are ways that I behave that mimic and that reflect the relationship I have with them and the fact that I've spent my life 
uh, in relationship with them. Prayer gives us access to God's perspectives. And that's why we pray. More important than anything else, we pray to gain a little bit of the wisdom and a little bit of the insight that God has. The more time we spend with God in prayer when things are status quo, when things are fine, I think the better off we are when things kind of go to pot around us. I mean, how often are we really spending time listening and learning when things are fine? We need to make that a discipline instead of just always turning to prayer as the last resort, as the, the thing that is our, our rope that we have to tie a knot at the end of to hold on. What if prayer was something that was a part of our lives every day so that it was a foundation? And how often do we really devote ourselves to that? So what does Scripture really promise then about prayer? We learn a little bit from Paul in Philippians chapter 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance, for the Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul doesn't say, let your request be made known to God, and he'll give them to you right away. Paul says, let your request be made known to God, and all that's promised is that the peace of God will be upon you. And it's a peace that, as Jesus says, is, is not as men give, it's not as the world gives, but it's the peace that I give. It's something greater than you can get from anyone else. Most importantly, what we're promised from a scripture with prayer, besides just getting what we want, and besides, uh, you know, being showered with the things that we ask for, is that we're promised God's presence. The other half of the verses that I shared, um, when David writes that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I will fear no evil because you are with me. In Isaiah 43, the second half of those passages is, is that he, God says, do not fear for I am with you. The Great Commission ends with the phrase, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Scripture promises us, promises us God's presence above all else. The name Emmanuel, one of the names given to the Messiah, means God with us. God doesn't cause our pain. He doesn't want bad things to happen to us, but when they do, he meets us in the midst of those things and says, I'm here. Where are we going to go from here? We pray so that we remain close to God come hell or high water, in good or bad. God wants to celebrate with us when we're joyful. He wants to mourn with us when we're sorrowful, but he wants all of us all the time. He wants to be part of who we are. And prayer is a part of how we do that. Prayer is how we build that relationship. It's how we become closer to him, just like we communicate with anybody else. The more we communicate, the closer we become. We're about to take communion, and as much as communion is a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ, in these moments, I think it would be good to remember that communion is also a reminder that Christ was here, that he was a part of this whole thing that God didn't see it fit just to watch us from afar 
and kind of see us try to work this stuff out and struggle against all odds to make it work. But he saw that there was stuff we couldn't do on our own. And he said, okay, I'm going to come be a part of this. Communion is a reminder that Jesus came down and lived among us. He grieved over the same things that we grieve over. He celebrated the same things that we celebrate. And in doing so, he gave us access to the divine. And he gave the divine access to us. So that no matter what we're experiencing, we can have faith and trust that God is indeed here among us. That he's not indifferent to our pain. He's not indifferent to our anger. He's not indifferent to our frustration. He empathizes. He understands it. And he's there in the midst of it to carry us through it, to walk with us through it, and to bring us through stronger and ultimately with his perspective in ways that we couldn't do it on our own. Let's pray. God, we come to you today confessing that we have frustrations a lot of times with this whole idea of praying to you and not understanding how life works around us. Sometimes we're frustrated because we see things going wrong in the world and we want to know where you are. Sometimes we're frustrated because we want direction and clarity with where you want us to go. And in those moments, we pray that you would give us the courage and give us the desire to move ourselves in those moments and to be your people in the world so that we take part in the redemption that you promise. There are times that we're angry and we're frustrated and we're sad and we just don't understand the greater problems that go on. In the midst of those moments, Lord, we invite you to come and to strengthen us. There are things we can never understand. There are things that you may not be able to give us an answer for. Help us to have the faith that even in the midst of those moments, <clears throat> that even in the midst of those struggles, that you are still a part of the struggle, that you are there struggling with us, that you have not deserted us, that you have not left us to fight alone. We thank you for the victory that we have in you. And Lord, help us to approach you, not just when we think we need something, but when, when things are fine. Help us to understand that prayer is not just something that we do when we want something, but that prayer is what you want from us to gain intimacy, to build relationship, to help us share in each other. Help us look to the needs of others to see how we can be a part of the answers of their prayers. Help us look to others to help us hear you through them. But ultimately, help us to devote ourselves daily to knowing you, to searching you, to building a foundation on you. So that in all things we can know and trust in your name. Amen.